Oh, I got to warn you, uh, you might want to give your seatbelt an extra tug because it's going to get bumpy in here. There are some potholes up ahead uh, in this message, but I think you're going to really enjoy it at the end. Um, we, you know, each of us that are, that are uh, speaking during this Wayfinder series have prepared a little um, devotional prayer that you can, you can text and receive it uh, if you like after each of the messages and maybe use it during the week. I think there's our, yeah, there's our, our text number and you just type in the word petition and it will automatically come to you. Um, so you take advantage of that. Uh, the title of my message today is Prayers of Petitions. We're going to talk about petitions today, and the tagline is an intimate invitation to discover and surrender to God's will. And I don't know if you're familiar with change.org, but it's an awesome uh, organization website that where anyone can create a petition advocating for a local or global, some kind of local or global change on any particular issue. And then others can join in and on the campaign by signing the petition. So it's pretty cool. Most of the petitions on change.org are serious, but some are a little questionable. For instance, a guy named Brandon Crane started a petition to demand that head and shoulders create a body wash called knees and toes. <laughs> Here's his explanation. He says, the issue is pretty self-explanatory. The injustice of having only head and shoulders, but not knees and toes, has gone unnoticed for too long, but I say no more. Please, my fellow citizens, help me change the foundation on which our follicles grow and by which our skin is moisturized. With your help, we can end the injustice of segregating our lower body. So, I like that. According to one online dictionary, the meaning of the word petition is, number one, a request or a call for change signed by many people in support of a shared cause or concern, or a formal request or appeal made to an authority or organized body such as a court of law. And today, as we continue in our Wayfinder series on prayer, we're going to look at a form of prayer called petitions which is sometimes also known simply as prayer requests. And petitions like these are found, uh, petitions are like the ones found on change.org are actually very similar in nature. hate to compare this to prayers to God, but they're very similar in nature to petitions that we do pray to God, where the petitioner makes an appeal to God for some kind of change or help and then can solicit others to join in on praying to God on their behalf and we call these prayer support people intercessors. And a prayer petition can be for uh, some kind of a healing or a job, wisdom in making an important decision, finding a lifelong partner, even for your favorite football team to win the Super Bowl in a few weeks, as long as it doesn't conflict with God's favorite team. <laughs> and once a petition is made to God for whatever it is, one then must wait for an answer for, from God, and while waiting, the petitioner, along with the intercessors, can repeat the petition to God frequently, and sooner or later, but hopefully sooner than later, an answer from God will be received, which could be a yes, because the prayer was answered favorably, or it could be no, because it wasn't, or it could be not be yes or no, just not yet. And that's a really very simple explanation of prayer 
petitions. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Seriously, I hope you notice how uninspiring I describe this type of prayer. Because the reality is that for many people, uninspiring is how they experience sending petitions to God. Brian mentioned uh, that over 50% of Christians pray every day, which also means that 50% don't. And of the 50% who don't pray every day, many struggle to find inspiration to ask God for something, and some don't do it at all. Why is that? Well, some of the problem simply boils down to the reality of receiving a low percentage of their prayers answered favorably, especially the big things in life. And because of this, many feel it's just not worth their time and effort to pray. Think of it this way. If you put a dollar in a vending machine and nothing comes out, how many dollars would you continue to invest in that machine before you decided it's not worth your time to continue? I mean, you might bang on it a little bit, you know, to get it to work. You might kick it a little bit, try to rock it back and forth. But after a few fails, you're most likely going to give up. And keep in mind that prayer petitions are not about bags of potato chips or Milky Way bars. They're real-life issues like asking God to save the life of a loved one or provide a job to put food on your table. And for so many... Even just one malfaction of the prayer vending machine can absolutely be devastating and heartbreaking. When our daughter Lisa turned 16, which is about 30 years ago, she had a major health event that took her out of everything she loved for many years. School, she was in high school at the time, sports, acting. It was a devastating time for Andrew and I, and we prayed fervently for her healing along with countless intercessors joining in on our desperate petitions to God. But as the days and then the months went on, she only got worse, not better, and it was a very difficult season of life for us. I had already left the business world, and I was on staff as a full-time pastor at a church in California. <clears throat> Andrew was very involved in that church as well. In addition, I was working on a master's degree at a local seminary. And so because of our faithfulness to God... In our involvement in the church, we believe that God would quickly answer our prayers. But we were dropping dollar bills of prayer several times a day into that prayer vending machine. Nothing was coming out. Eventually, I became very discouraged and skeptical about the effectiveness of prayer. That's not good for a pastor. And I know I'm not alone in this because I've talked to countless people over the years who end up in the same place. My message today is for everyone. Because I believe everyone who listens to this message is going to be inspired and blessed. You can tell me after the message if that's true. But this message is especially for those who have lost faith in the effectiveness of prayer. Especially for prayers of petition. Now, to solve this low percentage answered of answered prayer, many Bible teachers resort to teaching formulas and, or conditions that must be met in order to increase the odds of getting your prayer answered favorably. And there's a good reason for this kind of teaching because there's several passages in the Bible that seem to suggest that if a certain set of conditions are met, then God will answer your prayer favorably. Here are a few of those conditions. 
In Matthew 18, verse 19, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. If two of you on earth agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So what's the condition here? Two agree on anything, right? What's the promise? God will give it to you. Matthew 6, verse 6 through 8, Jesus said, When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And the implication is by answering your prayer. What's the condition here? Pray in secret. What's the promise? God will reward you favorably. Luke 18, 1 through 5 says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and never give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what the people thought. And there was a, a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. <clears throat> For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, don't you love that God included this? I will see that she gets justice so that she will eventually come, won't come and attack me. <laughs> Welcome to the mind of God, right? I mean, this is him thinking into scripture. What's the condition here? Pester God repeatedly. What's the promise? He will relent and give you what you want. James 4, 2 through 3 says, you do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. What's the promise here? Have the right motives. Or what's the condition? The promise is you'll get what you ask for. One more. Mark, uh, Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty two 22 through 24, have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. What's the condition? Don't doubt. Believe that God will answer your prayer. What's the promise? He will do it. <clears throat> and these Bible teachers take these conditional passages literally. And I want to suggest that these passages... We're never meant to be taken literally. Don't get up and leave just yet, okay? And often give people false, false hope when they are taken literally. I mean, just, let's just look at the first passage I mentioned where Jesus says, if any two people get together and agree on anything, they'll get it. Now, to be fair, Jesus was talking to his disciples here, so it's not just any two people Let's just assume it's two believers, right? Um, and he isn't making, he's, he's not making this 100% favorable promise to everybody, but to believers. But even so, I mean, really, all two believers need to do is agree on anything and God will give it to them. If you're like me, raise your hand if you've ever done this a few times in your life with another person. We, we all have, right? Keep your hand up if it didn't work. Okay, that's awesome because some hands went down, and I'm happy for you for that. But more hands stayed up. Um, listen to this because in that same chapter, just a few verses earlier, 
Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 18, verse 9. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. And thank God that we don't take this verse literally because we'd all be blind by now, wouldn't we? We'd run out of eyes quickly. All of the passages I read promises a 100% effectiveness if we follow certain conditions. And so logically, we must come to the conclusion that God is either a liar or that these passages are not meant to be taken literally. I'm going with the latter on this because I don't think God is a liar. Personally, I just don't, I believe that these are not to be taken literally. And those of you who know me know that I have a very high view of God and his word and that I'm very careful with the word of God whenever I'm up here or anywhere else teaching or preaching on the word of God. And one of the ways I'm careful is that I always filter everything through a Jewish context since all the writers of the Bible, including the New Testament, were Jewish, which means that those who listened to Jesus back then would have understood his teachings in the Jewish context in which these promises were presented. Jesus was a rabbi to his disciples, and the main purpose of this kind of rabbinic teaching is not intended to promise formulas for answered prayer on demand or to amputate body parts as a solution to sin. They are intimate invitations intended to motivate their disciples to live radically by discovering and then surrendering the will of God, surrendering to the will of God. And if you just hang in for another 10 minutes or so, I promise to connect the dots like I've done so many times in the past by laying out a solid foundation built on the word of God that will powerfully demonstrate how prayer and especially petitions of prayer are invitations to form a radical, intimate partnership with God intended to inspire us to live with unprecedented meaning and purpose. I'm actually raising the bar here today. And let's start by building this foundation by looking at what I believe is the foundation stone passage on prayer on which everything I'm talking about today is built upon. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing, for this is God's will for you in Messiah Jesus. And don't miss that praying without ceasing is God's will. So whatever it means, it's a really big deal. And you always want to pay attention whenever you read in the word of God when it says this is God's will. Because you never have to guess whether you're supposed to do it or not. If it's God's will, then it's absolutely something we should be doing. But again, if you take this passage literally, it would mean that we are to pray 24-7, 360 days a year, during the daytime, during the nighttime, and so no time to work, no time to play, no time for school, no time to read or watch a movie, no time to eat, no time to sleep, no time for anything else except praying. Because this wouldn't allow us to take time to do anything else, which is obviously unsustainable. Most people view prayer as an event 
to set aside on a calendar. I'll do it in the morning at 6 a.m. or three times a week in the evening at 7 p.m. or whenever it works into my schedule. But even though it's perfectly fine to schedule our prayer times, if this is all we do with our prayer life, then we are missing the blessing that comes from the meaning of praying without ceasing. This is yet another opportunity to form a radical, intimate partnership with God. One that saturates every aspect of our lives, which in turn affects how we live our lives. At least it's supposed to. Jesus said this to Peter, and by extension to his disciples, and now to us. He said in Matthew 16, 17, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And this phrase, binding and loosing, would would have not been new to the disciples. It was used since ancient times to give rabbis authority to make decisions and discernments about interpreting the commandments in the Torah, representing God the best way they can. And in that sense, binding equaled forbidding of something from a teaching in the Torah, and loosing equaled approving of something from a teaching in the Torah. But this was just an earthly authority given to the rabbis. And as men of God, they did their best to discern what God meant by each of those 413 mitzvot, the commandments in the Torah. But in this passage, Jesus adds a heavenly dimension to this authority. And this heavenly authority means that we all now possess the keys to the kingdom in heaven. Did you get your key when you walked in, by the way? I'll just keep that right here. What do keys do? They unlock doors. And what door is being opened here? The door to the kingdom of heaven. And you need to see how this also is a really, really big deal. Spiritually speaking, there are only two kingdoms in the universe. There's the kingdom of heaven where God resides. There's the kingdom of earth where we all reside. And oh, how bliss life would be if you and I could easily navigate between the two. How beneficial it would be if we could converse with God face to face. Instead of what often feels like just speaking to the air in our prayer time. But metaphorically speaking, the door to the kingdom of heaven is normally locked, preventing us from having full access to God. But Jesus has given us the keys to the kingdom of heaven. When did that happen? When the curtain was torn. Remember in his death? Providing access to God. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, we have confidence to approach God. And what does it do? It provides us an unceasing and unhindered access to God. Resulting in a promise that whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And what exactly does that mean? Well, Jesus said it this way in John 15. 
519. This is my life verse, by the way. I try to live this way as much as I can. Sometimes I even get it right, okay? John 519, Jesus said very truly, literally that says truly, truly. Whenever Jesus doubles down on the word truly, you want to listen to it, right? He doesn't do it often. Truly, truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus had an unceasing and unhindered access to the father, a two-way telecommunication line between him and God that only got shut off when he was crucified on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He never knew anything since the beginning of time. He was one with the Father. Every waking moment, Jesus sought his Father's will. What do you want me to do today, Dad? Where do you want me to go, Dad? What do you want, who do you want me to touch? What do you want me to say? And you can see that as you read the Gospels. That's how he lived his life. Let all my prayers and my actions on earth be a result of that never-ending conduit of your will in heaven. And this is why Jesus taught his disciples, when he taught his disciples how to pray, he said, your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And because of this incredible connection Jesus had with with his father, Jesus was always dialed in to his father's will. He lived his entire life with unprecedented meaning and purpose. He's our role model. Let's, Let's keep building on this foundation. Luke 11, 9 through 10, Jesus framed this intimate invitation another way. He says, so I say, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks the door will be opened. Ask, seek, knock, ask, seek, knock, ask, seek, knock. This is not a formula for receiving answered prayer favorably. This is is an opportunity and an invitation to discover God's will in any and every situation. Ask, Seek, knock. What do you want to do, Dad? It's an unceasing lifestyle. It's an unceasing posture. It's an unceasing way to live our lives. It's the way Jesus lived his life. The Apostle John said it still another way in 1 John 5, 14 through 19. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked him. When it comes to understanding God's will in any situation, ask Seek, knock, ask, seek, knock, ask and receive without ceasing. Seek and find, 
without ceasing, knock, pester him, and the door will open without ceasing. You know, if you watch NFL football, <clears throat> Brian's here to be proud of me doing a football illustration. <laughs> Tried to find a good wrestling metaphor, but if you watch NFL football, then you probably know that in between plays, nowadays, the quarterback is often in radio contact with the coach. And what is the coach doing? He's calling the next play. Run a reverse flea flicker. Statue of Liberty, throw a Hail Mary, you know? Ask without seek, ceasing. What's the next play, Dad? Seek without ceasing. Show me what to do now. Knock continually. Open those doors. And throughout the Bible, we discover many people who live their lives in an unceasing way. Abraham and Sarah, for instance. 75 years in childish. You know, in, in, in Eastern cultures as it is today, like we, have, we have our Afghan family that we take care of. Uh, Aubrey knew I'm, I'm going to get this in. And they've, they've now got four kids, four kids. And we were hoping they would stop <laughs> because they just don't have the money and the resources to keep sustaining a large family. So I had brought an interpreter in last Saturday to have discussion about a lot of things. But one of the things was kids. And I said, are you going to keep having kids? And so Nerudin, who's the father, said something in, in Pashto. And the interpreter says, you know, in our culture, because he's Afghan too. They have four daughters, by the way. I have to point that out. They have four daughters. In our culture, it's very important to have more boys than girls. That's how it was in Abraham's and Sarah's day. 75 years without a kid. I'm sure they prayed for that child their entire marriage, as some of you have. In, their 70, in Abraham's 75th year, God came and said, get up and go, I'm going to show you this land, and then I'm going to give you a family that's as numerous as the stars of the sky. And it took another 25 years. Probably toothless by then. <laughs> you get the romantic picture about that? <laughs> but what does it say of Abraham? That he was declared righteous because of his faith. Joseph, his brothers were jealous of him. They trafficked him. You realize he was trafficked by his brothers into slavery, sold into slavery. How's that? No, no, no. We can't stop. Thank you. Oh, hello. Ah. Ah, nice. We can talk afterwards. <laughs> they trafficked him. A few years later, he was falsely accused of sexual assault. 12 years in prison. Somehow he, he receives favor later on by Pharaoh. He becomes his right-hand man, and his family has to come to him. His, his brothers have to come to him and try and ask food. They don't recognize him. And finally, he, he, he lets them know who he is. And what does he say to them? They're all freaking out. He goes, no, you know, Satan meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. I mean, think of his life. 
Deborah became one of the judges of Israel during a time when women were considered property owned by men. She just ignored the glass ceiling and listened to God's will instead. She became one of the most successful judges and warriors who ever lived. All those men served below her. Jonathan and his armor bearer. Jonathan was King Saul's son, and one day there's this massive Philistine army camped up on a hillside, and Jonathan says to his armor bearer, hey, let's go up the hill and see if God, what God will do. <laughs> An entire Philistine army is up there. And they get up there, and, and God confuses the army, and, and, and they are victorious. Two men, victorious. How about the man born blind in John chapter 9? He's born blind. That's got to be really difficult, right? Now he's an adult. He's never had sight. And in Jewish culture, if somebody is that way, the thinking back then was that somebody had a sin, so, they, so the disciples say, who sinned? Was it his mom or his dad or was it him? Jesus said, nobody sinned. Listen to this. But this happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. Wow. Or Paul, Rabbi Saul, the Apostle Paul, spent a lot of his time in jail. It didn't matter where he was, free or in jail. He was still doing God's will the best he could up until his last breath. All these men and women tapped into their 24-7 unceasing direct access to God and experienced unprecedented meaning and purpose in their lives, even being willing to die if that was also God's will. Jim Elliott was one of five people killed during an attempt to share the gospel with a tribe in Ecuador uh, of unrich people. Elliot professed faith in the Messiah Jesus at the age of six, and his parents encouraged all their children to be adventurous and live their lives fully for Christ and God's will. And to say that Jim lived an adventurous life would be uh, a gross understatement. Google his name if you've never heard his story before, Jim Elliot, uh, and you'll be blown away. And I'm certain that if Jim and uh, the, uh, certain that Jim and those four other people often made petitions of protection to God while they were there, but always wanted to put God's will ahead of their own will. Sometime after their death, Jim Jim's diary was retrieved, and this was one of dozens of quotable quotes found in it. He wrote, wherever you are, be all there. Wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt. Every situation you believe to be the will of God. Years later, the entire tribe all came to faith in Jesus. And they said the reason was because of the faith of those five men, even to the point of their death. One more story, Jesus. When Jesus knew his life was coming to an end, he called his disciples together for a meal. The occasion was Passover. So it's a Passover Seder. And because soon Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, would be slaughtered during the exact time that the lambs are slaughtered in the Temple Mount during Passover. 
And so knowing that his time was short, he shared a traditional Passover meal with his disciples. Little did they know it would be their last meal together. At the beginning of the meal, Jesus said this. This is Luke twenty-two fifteen. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Why? Because being the slain lamb of God is what Jesus came to earth to do. That was his mission. That was his purpose in life. He came to save the world from its sins with his shed blood. This is what Jesus had in mind when he said, I eagerly desire. I have waited for this moment. He is proud and he's exploding with expectation. And even so, what does he do after dinner? He gets up and he walks across the valley, up the hill of the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane to make a petition to God. And what is his prayer? I don't want to do this. There's got to be another way. Take this cup from me. Do you realize this is Jesus having cold feet? He wants out. He's so stressed that we're told in the scriptures that he sweats blood from the pores of his skin, a very rare medical condition, condition that only happens under extreme stress. Now, if there's anyone who should have all his prayers answered favorably because he meets all the conditions and formulas perfectly, it would be Jesus, wouldn't it? But Rabbi Jesus knows better than this, and so he ends his petition saying, yet not my will, but your will be done. He will do this two more times, not because God isn't listening to him, because it takes him three times to surrender his will to God's will. And worship team, you can come up here. Jesus was never more human in that moment. It took many years before God began to heal my daughter. She has a wonderful life today. Four beautiful children. She's a private practice as a therapist. But those were really difficult years for Andrea and I. It was during those years... And I began to understand the deeper and more mature purpose of prayer. Everything that I've shared with you this morning, ask without ceasing. Seek without ceasing. Knock without ceasing. Never stop asking others to agree with you. Never stop seeking the right motives. Certainly never stop knocking on that door to pester God. You've been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, a two-way telecommunication line to God. I'd like you to hold it up. Actually, I'd like you to stand. And hold up your key and take a look at it. I want to do something we, we do often here. I want to do a Lectio Divina. Which means we're going to read something three times together, and each time I want you to think about something. 
It's back here on the screen. If we can get that up there. Not there. Keep going. There we go. Let's read this together. And then just meditate on something I'll tell you after each time we read it. Let's read it. Ask, seek, knock. Wherever I am, I want to be all there. I want to live to the hilt every situation I believe to be the will of God. Not my will, but your will be done, God. Think about how different life would be if we lived without ceasing this way. Just for a moment. Let's read it again. Ask, seek, knock. Wherever I am, I want to be all there. I want to live to the hilt every situation I believe to be the will of God. Not my will, but your will done, God. Petition God to help you live this way. Ask him. One more time. Ask, seek, knock. Wherever I am, I want to be all there. I want to live to the hilt every situation I believe to be the will of God. Not my will, but your will be done, God. Believe that this is God's will for your life.